Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this Palm Sunday afternoon, we turn in God's word to the letter to the Philippians chapter 2, particularly verses 5 to 11, that's page 980 in your pew Bible. And it's very fitting for us to examine Philippians 2, 5 to 11 on a Palm Sunday. Some of you may recall that in previous years, it was customary for us to revisit the gospel account of our Lord Jesus is entry into Jerusalem and to spend some time in how relevant the historic event of this day represents to us now. But we've learned that what we read in the scriptures in the Old Testament, what we understand historically, has a typological application to the Lord Jesus in his present reality. In other words, The Old Testament promise of a king for Israel has found fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But he is not just the king of a specific country, but he is the Lord of all. So we must therefore follow the historic reality of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem by the Lord Jesus to look further forward to see how his triumph in Jerusalem anticipates his ultimate triumph in his ascension and his exaltation of his sitting down at God's right hand. What we have in a specific day at the gate of Jerusalem is the start of our Lord's coronation into glory. And it's here in Philippians chapter 2 that Paul provides us with a deep theological principle that is immediately applicable to our daily lives and our fellowship as believers. We know this principle. How an understanding of the deep theology revealed in the scriptures will always lead to practical application to the recurring struggles of your life as a believer. Now, why is this the case? Why is it that we need to know the fullness of the gospel in order to understand it immediately within our daily life? Well, that's because the recurring problems in your life are always the most intractable. I want to repeat that. The recurring problems of your life, just imagine that right now. What are they? Those are the ones that keep coming back, don't they? They're the most intractable ones. They can be ordinary or small, or they can affect your day-to-day living. But you know what they are. Why are they so intractable? It's because they go so deep within us, like the taproot 
of some weed that is wrapped around each and every one of our hearts. And you need the fullness of the gospel to deal with them. Why? Because it's the full power of that gospel to shed light upon them, to root them out, and to destroy them. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing here in Philippians chapter 2. There's a problem in the Philippian church. It's quite a common one to every one of us. It is an attitude problem. Now, what is an attitude? Well, you probably automatically will understand what that is. But think for a moment then what it could be. It's a disposition, a settled way of thinking that you've established as a repeating pattern that arises after we draw conclusions about ourselves in relation to others. And it's the problem of our attitudes that go right to the heart of our sinful natures. We draw conclusions about ourselves that are false or they're exaggerated in some way, either positively or negatively. We go overboard either in one direction or the other. Now we have probably known a person who for some reason had a huge disconnect to the realities, to the facts around them, and how they thought about themselves. Now, what do we call that when we see it? Well, that's what we call a bad attitude. Now, a bad attitude can be so profound in shaping a person's life, and it can be so destructive in any relationship. So we as believers must be particularly on guard about our attitudes. What have we come in with from the world around us into our holy fellowship? How does that attitude affect our fellowship in Christ's church? So what was the bad attitude of the Philippian believers? You see it in verse 21. Of chapter 2. Do you see it there? For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul sets out in these verses that our attitude is not to be drawn from conclusions we make of ourselves apart from Christ Jesus. That's why he starts in verse 5 the way he does. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this attitude, this settled way of thinking, this disposition, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Our attitude is to be grounded in Jesus Christ. And if our attitude is grounded in Jesus Christ, then it is going to be grounded in the fullness of the gospel. And that's the pattern of Paul's thinking. Let's look at that for a moment now. I want you to notice how there is two parts to this in his thinking, describing two attitudes. Can you see it there? The first is in verses 6 to 8. It's the attitude 
of Jesus Christ to our need. It's there. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now notice the stages in that attitude, the stages of Christ's own humiliation. First, it's the reality of his deity and of his glory. He was in the form of God. Second, it's a consideration of his divinity, that he was equal with God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The third step is the boundary of his humiliation. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And fourth is the goal in his death. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you see what Paul is describing here? That Jesus Christ's attitude is to humble himself. Why? To get under our sinfulness so that he might bear it for us on the cross. So our attitude to one another is to humble ourselves to get under the burden of our fellow believers, to enable them to bear their burden. Notice how Paul doesn't stop here with a simple, Jesus did this, now you do it. That would be bare moralism. That's the typical line of a liberal church. Jesus did this, now you do this. What's missing? The gospel. That's what's missing. Because it's the power of the gospel that gives you what you need that enables you to do this. Without the power of the gospel and its grace, we're left with a bare command that will crush us. So that's why Paul goes on in verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the second attitude. And it is the gospel attitude. Notice it's the attitude, not of one to another. It's the attitude of God the Father to the work of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says. Therefore, God. God's attitude is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ that he might be given the highest place in the universe. Do you see how the two are connected? Our ability, our willingness to humble ourselves, to get under our brother or sister in Christ, in the burden, is directly related to our understanding of how God the Father has exalted Christ above every other name. So we humble ourselves 
before the Lord Jesus. Because of what he has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection. So when we humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus, we find the grace to humble ourselves before one another. When the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus looms largest in your life, humility is the logic of the gospel. The power of the gospel is right here. Now let's look for a moment a little more closely at this, because this could be rather new to you. Notice how Paul sets this out in verse 9. Therefore, God. Now we've seen this little word before, haven't we, in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. Whenever we came to a therefore, what did we do? We stopped and we asked, what is the therefore there for? Well, we know that Paul's first set of exposition of the gospel, and then he tells us how to live it. That's his usual pattern. He explains the gospel to you, and then therefore, live this way. You see it in verse 12, just after our reading. Here's the fullness of the gospel. Therefore, he says, and this is the response to what Christ has done for us. But notice here, it's not our response in verse 9. What is it? It's God's response. This therefore in verse 9 connects God's response to what Christ has done. So how does the logic of the gospel work here? Connect what God, what Christ has done for you with what God has done for Christ. You see, God's concern is that the Lord Jesus Christ must be exalted. And why is that God's logic? Why must that be his concern? Well, the answers are obvious. The first reason is because he promised to do that very thing. In Isaiah 52, 13, he describes the suffering servant like this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And here it is. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. In Luke 24, Jesus himself says so. He chides the disciples on the Emmaus Road and says this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and, and here it is, enter into his glory. And the third reason is actually quite simple. Every dad knows this one. Well, gee, you promised. Gee, dad, you promised. God promised to do this. And so he will fulfill it. Now, the next reason why God wants to exalt Jesus is even more profound. It's a moral reason. It flows out of the integrity of God's heart. We know this from the Gospels. Mary sings how he exalted those of humble estate. Jesus taught over and over again that he who humbles himself will be exalted. He would say the last shall be first. And the first last. James the apostle wrote, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. P. 
Peter writes, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. Jesus in John 10 says these things. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep. So the love of God is connected with Christ's humiliation. Even when our Heavenly Father had to turn away as Christ hung on the cross, because our Savior had become sin for us, he had to turn his back. In another sense, God was aware of Christ's obedience to lay down his life for rebel sinners like me and like you, and his heart is bursting with admiration. It's the reason the Father loves him. I lay my life down for the sheep. So the question for us is quite simple. Do we agree with the logic of God, our Heavenly Father? Is Jesus Christ to be exalted above all, preeminent in all creation, or do we seek our own interests? and not those of Jesus Christ. That's the question before us. We have the pattern of Paul's thinking. Let's consider for a moment the nature of our Lord's exaltation. We've noticed there's four stages to the humiliation. Well, we see a similar pattern in his exaltation. The first is in verse 9. He is given the highest place. That's number one. He received the highest name. Now, what is the highest name? It's the name of Jesus, yes, certainly, but what does that mean? It means more than just a name, because we must remember how the Lord God took on the name of Jesus in his incarnation and birth, but he did not relinquish his divinity. But now, in his exaltation, the incarnated Jesus takes on another name, Lord. And the Greek word for Lord is used in the Old Testament Greek translation for the Hebrew as the name of God. It's the name of the enthroned God of the universe. So we need to see what's going on here very carefully. It actually points to a great deep theological truth of the natures of fully divine and fully human in our Savior. That the Lord Jesus Christ does not relinquish his humanity. He displays his deity without relinquishing his humanity. And how does he do this? Because of he is exalted to the highest authority. He is Lord. That above every other name, it's at the name of Jesus that every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. What is Paul doing here? He's also pulling in the Old Testament. Specifically Isaiah 45, 23. It's right there where it says, to me every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess to God. It's a divine name here. And Paul writes that the one who bears the divine name is the one born in the stable and crucified 
in humiliation. He is the one and no other who is now exalted. He is the one and no other. So that every human being, every living creature will bend the knee down before him. Imagine that. Even those who despise him today will be constrained by his glory to bow down before him. Imagine the animals themselves, every creature it says, gathering before him and bowing down. You, me, believers throughout history will kneel before his exalted glory. And his last stage of exaltation once again mirrors the purpose, the goal. Notice it's right there. His highest personal ambition is right at the end. To the glory of God the Father. That's precisely out of Jesus' own high priestly prayer in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, I want to just give a brief word on the importance of our application of this deep theological truth, this fullness of the gospel. You must kneel down before Christ first, and then you can kneel down before each other. Now, clearly, the church is in trouble today, isn't it? Because we no longer trust in Christ, but rather we trust in our own interests, our own motivations. How many do you know who will attend church so long as they get what they want when they want it. The church is in trouble these days, my dear friends. And the trouble is we're not taking our God seriously enough. We're not taking his word seriously enough. We're not making sure that our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ matches the scripture's teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not even interested in finding that out. If you have an attitude problem, my dear friend, it's because you lack the fullness of the gospel. Is there an attitude that plagues you, that troubles you today? If so, you have to look there. You will not change it on your own power. Maybe part of the problem is, is you fail to bow before the Lord Jesus. We live in a time when so many who claim to understand the gospel have so distorted that same gospel as to make it unrecognizable. I mean, we do live in a world today of endless self-promotion and self-absorption that can't even scratch a reason for acts of self-sacrifice, of getting under each other's burdens unless there's some benefit to the giver first. But notice what Paul says here. This is my beloved son. Kneel before him. Do not be busy with self-centered promotion. Why? Because Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. And therefore, he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Why? Because of gospel fullness. Because God himself seeks to exalt the Son 
So we must ask ourselves, have we done that? Do we do that? For if we do not, I guarantee you, your attitudes will win the day. Have a mind like Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.